Welcome to the Inclusive Mental Health Podcast, Crossroads in Therapy by Belong. In this podcast, we will put therapy under a magnifying glass and enkindle the spirit of intersectional mental health. In each episode, we talk to experts with adequate professional and personal experiences in tackling mental health challenges faced by marginalized communities. The title for today's episode is Situating Disparity in Therapy. Persons with disability or disabilities often encounter challenges while seeking out effective and accessible mental health care. The pandemic has made mental health services more inaccessible to marginalized communities around the globe. Discussions revolving around mental health needs of persons with disability often ignore the intersectional dynamics that dictate the questions of accessibility movement and achievement in therapy. In this episode, we talk to Renu Adlakha who did her doctoral research on the psychiatric profession in India with particular reference to the treatment of women. Her areas of specialization include sociology of medicine, mental illness and psychiatric profession, anthropology of infectious diseases, bioethics and disability studies. Stay tuned as we try to find out how the pandemic has impacted the intersectional mental health needs of persons with disability and contemplate about its influence on the future affirmative and inclusive therapy work. Hi, Professor Renu. Welcome to today's episode. Thank you. Professor, you have done extensive research on the topics of health, disability, gender and development. How has your work on such diverse intersectional themes impacted your idea of healing? I think the way it has helped me is that it's a paradoxical kind of understanding that I've arrived at. On the one hand, It has, of course, underscored to me the immense and unrecognized dimensions of mental well-being and mental ill-being that is often in everyday life camouflaged, like umbrella terms as problems of living, normal stress. A lot of issues around mental ill-being get splashed in these wider categories. And there's also this idea that, you know, you must develop tolerance, you must develop resilience, which are very important. But there's also in that process a certain undermining or underplaying of the multiple and very complex dimensions of mental well-being and ill-being. So I think this intersectional research perspective has actually awakened me to that as one level. At another level, it has brought home to me both the importance of having professionals engage with this and be as important as any other kinds of professionals. You may you might go to a tax consultant for your tax problems, or you may go to you know a health person for your physical problems. So the need for having a set of people and trained people, not necessarily trained in medicine, but trained in the diverse nature of the human mind to be available for uh, discussion, interaction. And thirdly, it has brought to me the idea that actually the mental health professions in India, at least what little I know of them, are highly skewed and highly underdeveloped in some ways. That is the psychiatry, where the psychiatrist is largely, you know, considering himself a medicine man and therapy becomes something like an adjunct tool that he wants to use and is probably not even capable of using and hence resorts a lot to common sense knowledge. And also 
Then you have the mental health practitioners, say clinical psychologists who are trained in some schools of psychology and who try to operationalize that. But they are, to my view, the professionally you know, qualified ones. They then come in an economic bracket that is not accessible to a large majority of the population. That kind of work is also very time consuming. And, you know, it needs to be reconfigured, I think, if it is required to go beyond the paying and, if I may say so, elite audience. And I think the involvement of people who are, you know, self-identify or go for what they identify as problems of mental health or problems of living, the role and their agency even I feel in the clinical psychology domain is not adequately addressed in terms of theory. It may be addressed in, you know, like, what do you think? And what is your viewpoint? But that's not enough. I mean, you have to actually leave behind and look at the issue from the point of the person who's coming with the categories that person is employing. And sometimes professionals get too engrossed in their own categories and they overlook this. So I think these are the three, four kind of uh, observations that have come to me, both in looking at this intersectional research that I've been doing over the years, as well as my own engagement with mental health at a personal level, particularly in the domain of bereavement, when I lost both my parents at different points, also in the area of coping with the visual disability, and also having done a PhD in looking at psychiatry from a gender and largely sociological perspective, as well as, you know, undergoing some counseling uh, training, short-term counseling training. So, I mean, I'm speaking from these different experiential domains that I've gone through in my life, both at the professional level and at a personal level. Thank you for sharing. Your book, Deconstructing Mental Illness, an Ethnography of Psychiatry, Women and the Family, shows the complex intertwining of illness and culture in the context of mental disorder. In your opinion, how has psychiatry played a major role in stigmatizing disabled bodies, especially in the mental health sector? I did my PhD in the mid-1990s and now we're 15 years later. And recently, I did have the opportunity to consult psychiatrist for my personal problems, which I mentioned, on a short-term basis. What I found is that at one level, the stigmatization is kind of a ricocheting because the psychiatrist himself, in a way, feels stigmatized within the larger medical community. See, he's trying, he or she, they're trying to be part of this medical community. And uh, there's justification for that because of the highly medicalized training that they have received. But then they get segregated in their professional space, uh, either within the general psychiatry unit of a hospital or within the existing mental health hospitals that exist or within their private practice, which is now an area, at least in urban areas, a very prolific domain of economic activity and consultation. It offers privacy, it offers confidentiality. Psychiatrists are willing to be the uncles and aunts which are missing now in the family due to the various factors that are disrupting the family systems. So I think 
some amount of the stigmatization is coming from psychiatrists themselves because you know it ricochets on to patients how psychiatrists feel about their profession and themselves the situation has changed hopefully it will change for the better but still i mean to give you an example when i when i consulted this person who is a psychiatrist and you know after a point he said that you know i'm not really able to going to be able to engage with your issues because i'm a psychiatrist but you know he was using terms like trauma therapy and all and which he was ill qualified to actually engage in so i think the larger conflict is also because of the not so clear connections between clinical psychology and psychiatry as it's operating in india i'm not talking about the theoretical or the conceptual nature of the scenario i'm talking about how it practically pans out into everyday practice so that's one level and at the second level i mean the deep rooted stigma that mental illness has had historically its legal implications and the psychiatric profession being still marginalized in many ways within mainstream medicine i mean there are very few people who will go voluntarily into psychiatry at the you know they go in from the mbbs to the md level many times it's you know a second or a third choice and the situation is improving but i think there's still a lot to be done and i think also the main stigmatization that happens with due to psychiatry is i think the legal implications that can emerge if a psychiatric diagnosis or a psychiatric condition is brought into play and you know how psychiatrists have are testifying in cases of divorce and other cases where their opinion on the mental health status of people is legally called upon and is regarded as legally valid so i think the main problem for the stigmatization which also is registered by people apart from the fact that you know mental illness is historically so stigmatized but i think the law has a lot of a role to play both in stigmatizing mental illness and with regard with people who have mental disability and with regard also to the power that psychiatry exerts when it connects up with law yeah and the mental health sector as you have mentioned before has expanded in its scope in the recent years however this expansion has varied across the geosocioeconomic lines why do you think that is the case i mean i've already elaborated how you know in terms of professional status it is being part of medicine being lower down in the medical system then that same process which affects individual decision making when in the medical career trajectory also gets down to the policy level where mental health has been historically very much down in our policy discourse it's something that's an adjunct in the health sector if you look at it the issues around mental health mental well-being in the psychiatric institutions it's kind of divided between the ministry of health and family welfare and the ministry of social justice and empowerment you know where if you look at it in terms of a disability so i think it's also one of the unevenness is also due to the fact that you know it has a mental illness when i was working you know on my phd we didn't talk about mental disability or we didn't talk about psychosocial disability these are terms that came in later it was mental illness and i think there there was greater clarity 
both among clinical psychologists and among psychiatrists and other and counselors of what mental illness is and what they are configuring it as and what they are required to do mental illness is not a dead category but it then takes on another dimension in the discourse of disability which has emerged as a major discourse you know in the last 25 years and it's encompassed many issues many categories and issues and when it takes on this activist mode i think it has resulted in some it has expanded the system in that you have much many more stakeholders coming in from different perspectives but at the same time i think it's also confused the system in a way and hence the both the uneven geographical development which is also related to resources and priorities and also the underplaying which i mentioned in my opening remarks of the mental health problems and mental health issues that are still there that they are not so important and even within that there is a hierarchy i mean issues like substance abuse or suicide may take on greater salience conditions severe mental illness may take on severe more salience but common mental disorders you know more neurotic disorders life style related disorders maybe post traumatic stress disorders they still become lesser in the hierarchy of mental distress so i think there is many factors you know which are both linked to the development of these categories and their incision by into different discourses that the way in which these movements or these expansions have challenged the traditional models and practices that were developed within these professions when they were looking at you know mental problems as mental disease and mental illness mm uh, professor you have been associated with the disability movement in india since quite some time how accessible have mental health services been to people with disabilities i think it's again it is something that has not been really addressed i must admit because there is this overarching paradigm or frame that disabled people have these difficulties they experience barriers they experience attitudinal they experience all kinds of stigma and which is coming out of the you know physical cultural social and architectural barriers so it's a given that their lives are going to be difficult and that they're going to have to experience a lot of stress and that's as mentioned in my opening remarks in some ways that is one of the issue that is a prime example of the normalization of problems of mental health and mental being and well-being that i alluded to in my opening remarks that this has been for the disabled population regarded as something as a given so obviously it has to happen so it's normalized i see one is looking at mental health problems as disabilities you know psychosocial disabilities and the other is the mental health distress that people with other kinds of identified disabilities experience on an ongoing basis with their life so these are often even within the disability movement regarded as distinct rather than being brought together as phenomenon of the spectrum of well-being and ill-being that all people experience so you know that there is a way in which the gap still exists i feel hmm and what impact has the pandemic had in this regard well so we can look at it in various ways one is it brought about for everybody a certain you know the lockdown phenomenon and the social distancing phenomenon created a kind of catastrophe for all people there was also this at the one level isolation particularly traumatic for people living alone but even within the family being isolated within the family setup and the fact that you know 
family survive is also because there are points at which you leave your family, you go to your family, you go out to work, you go out to study, and that creates a space away from the family, which is very necessary for mental well-being. And here you were stuck with your family, stuck at home, classes were happening, began happening at home, people began working from home. So I think this phenomenon created a huge amount of stress for everybody. And I think people who already had some identifiable problems, be they psychosocial or be they physical, experienced more burden in a variety of ways. Like I was living alone and it was totally, I had to figure out, you know, how do I get my groceries? When I got COVID, I actually self-treated most of the time because I was deteriorating. And I realized I really need to go somewhere because otherwise I'm going to be at home deteriorating. And so before my saturation fell, I through phone connected with, you know, somebody and he ordered an ambulance for me. The ambulance came and picked me up. I went to the hospital. I was there for four days. I came back home in an ambulance. I was, you know, undergoing post-hospitalization. COVID was still not over. I couldn't manage at home. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't even get food from me from the kitchen. There was nobody at home. It was locked down. Again, I went to a hotel, you know, many of these hospitals organized hotels during that period. I went to a hotel and stayed there for 15 days because nobody could come to me and I could go to nobody. So that was being alone. We saw all those horrors where, you know, funerals were not attended and people didn't visit and people were isolated in their homes. And if you tell me that all these things didn't have an impact on the mental health of everybody, I don't know what had. And then we have horrendous stories of people who were disabled, who had to rely on the goodwill of others to leave groceries for them. Of course, during this period, if you had your internet and if you had some capacity to network, you could get by. But what I'm saying is that it was a very traumatic period and it was, a, I think it has affected, and I don't need to say it, and we read about it all the time, that it has severely impacted the mental health of many people, including children who have lost almost two years of education and what that means for a growing child or for an adolescent, we will only come to know in the time to come because many of these things, you know, the impact is prospective. It's not immediate. Yes, definitely. The pandemic has not just made disabled bodies more vulnerable to constant pathologization, but has also negatively affected their access to mental health support systems. According to you, what were or are some of the state-suggested medical practices which have exacerbated the mental health crisis, especially during the pandemic? Well, I think what happened was that at least in terms of issues around treatment and issues around identification of what is a, it's not only mental health that got affected, mind you. I mean, people who had cancer, people with kidney diseases, people with all kinds of cardiovascular conditions, arthritis, all of these conditions took a backseat. Yeah, because COVID became the central category, hospitals, the health system became COVID-centric, everything revolved around COVID. And that's it. so it's not only that mental health problems have been neglected or was totally sidelined, it's also other specialities, other conditions, and, and this is a common plaint across that, you know, cardiologists, nephrologists, everyone was talking about how people and all these specialists actually all became COVID doctors. So I think it was turning upside down 
the whole healthcare system totally transforming priorities leading to huge neglect of other domains which are equally important and within that comes the psychological or the mental health issues you know everything i mean i'm sure many people who are on medication for chronic mental health issues i'm sure their medication schedules got disrupted i'm sure their consultations got disrupted because teleconsultation is all very well but actually to negotiate it to get to it to get your appointment to actually to get your mind frame into it and particularly someone who's not very well it's not an easy task i'm never comfortable with my teleconsultations on any issue because it's very nice if you're under treatment and it's kind of an ongoing follow up or monitoring but when someone has to diagnose you through telediagnosis through telemedicine i don't think i wouldn't be very comfortable with that kind of thing so i think it is not only mental health issues that got disrupted but i think the whole system of addressing people's needs within the healthcare system within other systems whether it's the education system the economic system i mean people lost so many jobs so to talk about mental health how mental the health system was affected during the covid is bit of a not something so unique because you can easily ask the question of how did the economic get system get how did the you know education system get affected i think it got affected in that same dramatic way and i think things are now returning to some level of normalcy and i think now also i feel that we may actually never know many things about what happened with covid and what the mental health consequences because there is an intense desire for people to just shut that period off people you know if you go now in conversations there's not much conversation about covid protocols of social distancing and all they're not being observed really people are not asking each other to observe them i mean people are so desirous of returning to their normal life and we are in the middle of festival season and i don't think it's actually at the moment so wise to just give up all the covid protocols because you know we have this festival season the virus is still around yes it's at an ebb but couple of months wouldn't be bad but people want to run away from that so like you want to think of it as a bad dream that you want to get away from yeah yeah and how do you think that persons with disability in rural areas or on the geographical periphery of our country experience i think there are both pros and cons at one level the way you would configureize ideal services etc were not available to them and we saw many deaths and many that whole scenario played out before us what happened in rural areas you know where people were really deprived of the basics of oxygen and stuff like that but i think at another level apart from education and employment for those disabled persons who were part of the school or education system or part of the workforce i'm not sure how much it actually really affected them because anyhow they are deprived of so many things and the pandemic just created a situation in which more people got depressed but it's not like disabled people have on a so called non pandemic times as if they have much access or much convenience life is more or less the same that's my reading with it i don't think it impacted in the dramatic way as it impacted people say in urban areas or urban disabled hmm your life is so scarce there's so many scarcities and lack of access at a, such a high level on a normal basis yeah 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 and also access to mental health services is quite limited in certain areas i mean almost areas in most yeah. areas yeah yeah i mean if you are for example 
if I ask you, because I believe the personal, I'm pretty well-located, well-situated person. But if I experience certain things and if I illustrate it with myself, then you can imagine what it would mean for others who are not at all situated in the way I'm situated. And I think one of the things that like now, for example, suppose I'm on my own. I don't really have a family. I want to talk to somebody about my life. Suppose, who do I go to? I do not want to go to, you know, someone who tells me, oh, how would you think? How do you feel? What should you do? I don't know what I want, but I don't want these catchphrases. I don't want a psychiatrist to tell me that I need medicine. What options do I have? And I think there's a problem with the way the mental health profession is operating in India. I think it really needs, you know, some level of both. A lot of the things are just, you know, things which have been learned and they are not organic to our society. We don't have systems of therapy, systems of treatment that have emerged organically. We have, West, I'm not saying that those concepts which we have are useless or that they don't help, but somehow they are, to me, it often looks like a superimposition. You're trying to fit in concepts and theories that have not developed here organically. And I'm not seeing so much theory and concepts being developed here organically. Maybe it takes more time. I don't know. I'm not a practitioner. Hmm. Well, in your opinion, what are some of the ways through which the state and non-state actors can provide better support to persons with disability, especially during these challenging times? It should be not posed as a problem. You know, because the disabled are anyhow configured as people with problems and problems for society. If you add to that the mental health dimension, you exacerbate their configuration as problem people, both to as they perceive themselves and both as they are perceived by others. So Pele, the person is physically disabled, maybe has polio. Then you say, okay, polio causes a lot of mental health issues. The person is stressed and we need to get them or the person is encountering a lot of barriers and we need to help them encounter that. So you create a double problem scenario for both that person and for the wider social understanding. I don't know, somehow you don't bring in, you may do the things that it may be actually tools and processes of mental health developed in the mental health field that may be used for assistance. But if you configure it, then you give them a double burden. Do you get my point? Yeah, yeah. Because they're already having a stigma. Then you say they have mental health problems, which they may often do, which are underplayed and sidelined, which is also true. But if you want to address the mental health problems of disabled people, you also kind of get the image, oh, they're incapable, then they have mental health issues. So who are they? They really need help, these poor people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It needs to be configured differently where, I don't know how, but it needs to be configured more with agency, more with ideas of participation, more with ideas of that as a disabled person, there are certain problems, there are certain issues that come up which are largely social, which are largely cultural, but which need to be addressed and which are experienced as stress by disabled people. Somehow it has to be focused in that. But the moment you talk about it in terms of healing and mental health and mental problems and distress, linking it with disability, it creates a certain problem, in my view. Hmm. And the gaze, I think, has to change. 
and you know the thing is that the gaze you put upon is also the gaze people take upon themselves it's reflexive hmm. you look at yourself in the way that others look at you so you know already disabled people are represented in uh, very problematic ways and then if you bring in the mental health aspect of it then their representations can get more problematic and anyhow we have you know that are sexual or they're hypersexual they have interactional like the blind people for example if you notice blind people's facial expressions are not well developed how do you learn facial expressions by seeing if you can't see your facial expressions are going to be not there no so anyhow when people interact with blind people they see that their facial expressions are almost you know not there apart from the ones they have learned to you know use they have not learned through imitation through watching so there is that problem already that they are perceived as weird their faces look weird you know so that's what i mean that there's some things which are linked to the disability which have to be addressed as part of the disability but when you bring in the mental health aspect you may at times exacerbate the disability experience and the disability representation yeah and have you personally come across initiatives doing some praiseworthy work in that respect not specifically with regard to i mean there are initiatives that look at legal empowerment there are issues that look at gender you know sensitization for disabled there are issues that look at you know sexuality training or education but just looking at the mental health aspects specifically nothing comes to my mind at the moment ad hoc efforts may be there particularly by people who are i mean for example anita gai is a disability scholar and she also is a psychologist and she is practicing privately she may be developing some initiatives in ways i don't know but something that i've heard of that's a very concrete approach or concrete initiative i don't know of and course i think there are disability helplines which probably address some of these concerns so that's one place where these issues might come up there's a need for developing a way of engaging with people with disabilities and their mental health issues hmm. i think there's a need for an approach i cannot say to the extent that you know i know an approach even in the west i can't think of it right now but i think there's a need for a culturally sensitive approach to look at the disability experience within specific life contexts and to be able to offer people so you cannot change the paradigm that disability occupies in society nor can you remove the barriers that many of them are going to that a mental health professional or the healing approach cannot do it can only help the person address these concerns in a more empowering way but how does one do that i don't know but i think that's an area that really requires a collaborative approach collaborative initiative between disability scholars disabled people professionals even psychiatrists psychologists counselors if i have the capacity and the time and the resources i think i would want to at least do some workshops around a way to develop such an approach among professionals and then to of course implement it yeah yeah we wish you all the best in those endeavors i hope that we are able to see those workshops being conducted anytime soon thank you